This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And so as you begin to kind of turn, tap your way there, we are continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has uh, turned from what was last week, a discussion of anxiety and kind of how to handle anxiety and what that looks like. Today, the issue which a lot of us probably come into with a variety of opinion, but really on the idea of, of what it is to judge and what that looks like and, and how that works out for us. And so what I want to do this morning is to read the text, just you kind of get a, a picture of what the field looks like, and then I want to address something that the text doesn't talk about, but I think is important to clarify and kind of get out of the way before we get into this, or we're going to end up with a tremendous amount of confusion so Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 6, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So probably one of the experiences that you have encountered, or you've heard of someone encountering is the idea, the thought that as Christians, we're not supposed to judge anybody, right? And so you're in a conversation with somebody, and they recognize really quickly that you're talking about something in their lives that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, is contrary to their understanding of Christianity, and so what do they say to you? Judge not. You can't judge me. Judge not. And so they begin to give you their, their understanding, really, their application of how this passage impinges your ability, affects your ability to speak into the inadequacy, the sin in their life. And they summarily just say, judge not. And then maybe they'll turn and say, and let ye without sin cast that first stone. Apparently they memorized that one out of the King James. <laughs> but one of the things we have to understand, my understanding of kind of how this passage breaks out, and I'll, I'll kind of justify this in a moment, Jesus is not speaking about the Christian's responsibility or the Christian really kind of speaking into any lost person's life within this passage. This passage has very little, if anything, to do with me walking up to a lost person and sharing the gospel with them or talking about any inadequacy in them that is inhibiting, keeping them from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I think what he's talk about, talking about in 7, 1 through 6 is the Christian community. Brothers and sisters in Christ, so members of Ridgecrest, members of Ridgecrest in Highland Terrace, members of Ridgecrest in, in some other church, us together. I think this is the realm that he's talking about. He's not talking about you encountering a lost person. He's talking about Christian to Christian. What does that look like? But I think it's helpful, and so I want us to address, in some sense, what our responsibility is to a lost person, Okay? I want to start in 1 Corinthians, and you don't have to turn to all these passages, but just let me walk through them. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, Paul writing, he simply puts this. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? So he's asking this question. 
What is my responsibility as far as judging and going and saying, uh, you know, random Joe lost person, they're going to hell because of this. Random Joe, you know, Joe lost person, they're going to hell because of that. What is my responsibility? What am I to do with judging them? Look what he asks. Is, not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And so he turns and he asks this question. He says, like, what responsibility do I have with them out there? And then he turns and, and to each and every one of us. And so you can look at the person beside you and say, to some degree in responsibility, it's my job to judge you. Nobody wants to do that. To a certain degree, it is our job and responsibility to judge those who call themselves Christian. Now, Jesus is going to give us instruction in that. Paul says it's not our job to judge those out there, but it is our job to judge those in here. Why isn't it our job to judge those out there? Writing in verse 13, Paul says, God judges those outside. God is judging the lost person. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We all know John 3, 16. But we get into John 3, 18, and he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. It's the same word, is not judged. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, is judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so we have this idea that when you encounter a lost person, there is no sense in going to them and detailing all the various ways that they are failing and that they stand judged. This is not our job. It is not our job to go and say, you are an awful, terrible person. These are all the ways you're, you're variously described as an awful, terrible person. It is not our job, our privilege, our responsibility to judge them and, and, and seek to alter and change their behavior on the basis of our judgment. And this is why. Paul, writing in Ephesians chapter 2, speaks of, of a lost person, us, before we came to know Jesus, and he says, we were dead. Everybody say, I was dead. I was dead. Man, you were absolutely dead and, in, and unable, you had an inability to respond positively towards God because you were dead. And the Bible says is, is when you're trespasses and sins. When we first moved to Greenville, we rented a house that was right beside uh, the funeral home, right over by Wright Park. And Bryce actually learned to ride his bike there because there's no car traffic in the middle of, or a cemetery, right in the middle of a cemetery. So it's a great place, spooky place, creepy place, granted, but a really nice place for a kid to ride a bike. But one of the things I never did is, as, as we walked through there was say to the dead people, to the people buried in the ground, hey, uh, get up. Hey, you, jump up. Hey, hey, would you watch him? He's going to fall. Like, I never sought to give instruction to dead people. I've been to a tremendous number of funerals, and if when I bring my kids, it's always more amusing. They say, why is she so still? Say, well, she's no longer alive. When is she going to wake up? Well, it's not really asleep asleep. It's more dead asleep. <laughs> like you when I want to... No, not, not like that. But one of the things we never do when we walk through a funeral home is begin to to kind of bark orders at people. What are you laying around for? Get up. Why? Because we recognize that dead people have no ability to respond positively to our command. The same thing with a blind person. If you find someone who is visually impaired, who is blind, and you ask them to go into your bedroom and to grab the red sweater, and they come out with the green one, you would not be frustrated with them and begin to bark orders at them and say, what is wrong with you? 
Why did you bring me the wrong one? Because you recognize they have no right ability to differentiate color because they are blind. When you encounter a lost person, their heart cannot positively respond to God because they are far off from him. So this is why the Bible speaks of them as being spiritually dead and spiritually blind. And we are dependent upon, and they are dependent upon, the awakening work of the Holy Spirit in their heart to allow them to respond positively to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why a Christian should never rightly be accused of being judgmental to a lost person. We should not expect or demand them to respond positively, righteously, or holy, because they have no reason to. But you do. There is every reason to expect a Christian to obey and to adhere to the gospel constraints of, the, of Jesus Christ, but there is no reason, there is no possibility rightly to expect a lost person to do these same things. It could be that some of us have been judgmental. So when a lost person says to you, if your spouse, if your kid, if your neighbor, if your coworker says to you, why are you so judgmental? It could be that you are. You have expectations upon them that they are not able to meet and to fulfill. Our response to lost people isn't one of judgment and judgmentalism, but it's one of heartbreak. We recognize unless they positively respond to God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that they will remain far off from God. It's not that they stay a bad person, but they stay a person who is eternally separated and far removed from the love of God. We're not talking about morality and immorality. We're talking about eternality, where they will spend all of eternity. And so we need to settle that in our minds because we recognize that as the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews eleven six, 6, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we're not seeking to make lost people good people. And then when they're good people long enough, there's this invisible line where they kind of cross over and they're no longer dead, but they're kind of quasi, they're, they're just kind of the walking dead. And now suddenly they're alive and living in a vibrant faith. There has to be this transition for the lost person where they move from being without faith and without belief to possessing faith and belief. And then on the basis of that, now they are made alive and are walking in true faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. We don't judge them. We graciously, compassionately call them to faith and model the gospel of Jesus Christ before them. So Jesus is talking about the particularities of what happens within the church. And he begins with this command. He says, judge not. Now, what Jesus is talking about is kind of this, this jumping to conclusions. And so where I see somebody come in and, and, and maybe they're holding a brown paper sack and, and they're throwing it up there, I'm like, that's really weird. I bet they're getting drunk here in the church service. Well, I'm jumping to conclusions. Maybe they have Evian in that. It's weird, but maybe they do, right? And so we're not jumping to conclusions. We're not uh, casting kind of this thin level of what we presume to be true about them. And so he says, when we are judgmental, when we jump to conclusions, we recognize that we too will receive that same judgment from God. 
And so if you are here and you're the type of person who looks around and, and you're looking at what you suppose to be the sin or inadequacy of the lives of those around you. And so you see these people who are just habitually late. They come in late and you say, man, they're just lazy. I mean, time changed Sunday. You had an extra hour to get ready and you came in late. You are lazy. You care nothing for the things of God. Well, this is you being judgmental. This is you uh, accusing them of things that you can't rightly know. We cannot rightly look at the heart of those around us, can we? Can you do that? Is anybody in here endowed with some special ability to look into the heart of those around you? Raise your hand. I want to meet you. We can't. Quite simply, we can't. And so he says, when you judge this way, recognize this is what you're doing. You're asking God to judge you that same way. None of us, none of us want to be judged that way. We want to stand before God gracious and merciful, not quick to jump to conclusion. We want to stand before God long forgiving and patient and kind, not one who, who takes our, our failures and our faults and throws them back up in our face and just runs down through the list of all the various ways that we have failed him since our last time together. So he comes to us and he says, judge not that you not be judged. So he begins to kind of flesh this out. And he says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so let's just say that, 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 that I know one of our members is a lawyer. And I suppose that because he's a lawyer, he's a, a low-down, dirty slime ball, right? Let's just suppose one of you happens to be a lawyer. And, 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 I, and, I, and I suppose based on the basis of that and what I know or what I've heard about some lawyers that he's completely unethical and really just an awful, terrible, and, and no good, low-down, dirty dog. And, and, and so that's what I begin to treat him or her like. No one in particular. <laughs> what I'm asking God to do is to treat me the same way. Do you know that the measure that you use, the way that you look at those people around you, and you say lazy, and you say glutton, and you say addict, you say loser, and you say worthless, and you say rich and useful, you're asking God to, to, to use that same tool of measurement on you. The idea of measurement was that when someone would come in and, and they were trading or they were buying goods and services, you could use uh, uh, kind of measurements that weren't fair, and so I could cheat the person. And so the argument that he's making here is, is if you cheat people in measuring up who they are and, and the metric of what they have to do to be holy and what they have to do to be accepted and what they have to do for all of these things, not in God's eyes because you can't determine that, but in your eyes, in your mind, and in your practice, then what you're doing is invariably asking God to apply those same things to you and to your heart. But I will tell you, frequently, we don't measure up to what we expect other people to be. I tend to expect much more out of other people than I do myself. And the things I give myself a buy or a pass on, I'm late, I don't automatically jump and say, you are lazy, you are worthless, and God does not love you. I say, man, I had all these things pop up and just, you know, things happen. 
I skip church, I don't tithe, I say something I wish, wish I hadn't said, I yell at one of my kids or at my wife, I look at something I shouldn't look at, I take something that doesn't belong to me, I have an uncharitable thought. My temptation is to give myself a buy on those things. But when these things are directed at me or these things are done by somebody I don't care very much for, I want to nail them to the wall. I want to see the righteous reign of God visited upon them in that moment. I want them stripped down bare and beaten, and I want everyone to see it and to point at them and say, you deserve this. And that's what the enemy desires for us to be like in our hearts. This is why in churches, and when people are vulnerable, when they share their sin, it's terrifying. Because socially, there's this expectation that when I share something deep and vulnerable about myself, then you will share something deep and vulnerable about yourself. And can I tell you, this is the only way church works. This is the only way it works. If I am broken and vulnerable just with God, then I'm not sharing it with the body. I have to be willing. You have to be willing. We have to be willing to be broken and in need together. This is what a Christian community is. It's not that we primarily just really enjoy one another's company and fellowshipping and and, and eating food that's questionably uh, kept at the right temperature, which some of you do. Thank you. But it's the idea that we are broken and imperfect together, passionately pursuing Jesus together. And so we're not casting judgments on one another. Instead, we're following the word that Jesus, his brother James, gives us in James 2, 13, where he says, judgment without mercy is shown to the one who's extended no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. We want to be merciful to those around us. We want to be gracious to those around us. We want to be generous in our judgment and not punitive in our judgment. So he uses this illustration that to us we've kind of, like we've cleaned up and it no longer stings, it no longer burns. But if you were to describe what he's about to say to a child, they would get how incredibly ridiculous this is. So try and come at this from the perspective of a first reading or a first hearing of it. So we know that we're not supposed to to have this inequitable measuring upon one another. We're not supposed to judge one another this way. So Jesus asks this question. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? So I'm up here and, and I look down and I see Rusty back there in the third row. And so I'm having a hard time seeing her eyes from here. Okay. And, and a little further back, I see Karen, and I'm having a really hard, seeing, hard time seeing her eyes from here. And I see Grace even further back, and, and all the way back there in the back row, I see David. And I'm having a really difficult time. I know he has eyes. I trust that. I've seen them before, but I cannot recognize them. And so he says, why are you seeing that speck, that insignificant drop of sawdust in his eye? But you don't notice the log in your own. Now, Jesus isn't talking about a two by four. Now, that would be challenging. If I have a two-by-four just kind of sticking out of my eye and I'm doing this number, right? I'm like, oh, hey, Dave, what's up, bud? You got a speck in that eye. 
You got a speck in your eye. And Dave's just like, are you kidding me? The link, the measurement that Jesus is talking about, imagine a telephone pole just sticking right out of my eye. And so I'm spinning around, and it's patently obvious to everyone that I've got this, right? Everybody recognizes, whoa, look out for Beasley. Like when he spins around, he is not paying attention. He will straight knock you on your backside. What's he doing? He's looking for specs. Imagine the, 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 the limits, or imagine just the depths that we have to go to to strain to see that in his eye all the time, ignorant to this massive, obvious sin in my own life. It's difficult. This is because we tend to maximize the sin in others' lives and minimize the sin in our own lives. Man, I want to maximize his sin because the bigger, the greater his sin is, the smaller my sin appears. Now, in reality, my sin has not changed. Be it pride, be it gluttony, be it lust, my sin has not changed. But my perception of my sin, for me, is seen through how I see my brother or sister's sin. What this guy's doing, described in the text, is completely ignoring and being oblivious to the sin that is looming large in his or her life, and instead choosing to focus on this sin that is insignificant and in someone else's life. So Jesus says, why do you see this? And the answer is because I don't want to deal with my sin. I'm much more comfortable dealing with someone else's sin. I don't want to deal with my sin. I don't want my sin made public. I don't want people to know. I want to deal with it privately. I want to keep it secret. And when I'm overcome with guilt, then I finally want to submit and pray to God. But I I want to deal with the sin in other people's lives because that's easier. And that requires no sacrifice. That requires no vulnerability on my part. And that is clean and it's over there. Not up here. Not in here. So Jesus goes on. He says, so we, we notice it. We observe it. And then he says, how can you say to your brother, Dave, come a little closer. Let me take that speck out of your eye. Dave's moving very cautiously around the log because he's heard about me incidentally uh, incapacitating people swinging the log around. So I say, Dave, come a little, come a little closer. And let, me, let me take that speck out of your own eye. Let me take that speck out of your eye. It's ludicrous. For one, it would be physically challenging, right? Because he's got to get close enough to me to bypass the sin that is looming large in my life for me to draw close enough to him to be able to get all the way over in there to touch it. And I got to be real honest. I don't like touching your eyes. I don't want you touching mine. But now, with this massive sin in my life, I want to ignore it. I want to put it off so much to a certain degree that I'm willing to let him get close so that I can invest myself in his life and spend all my time and all my energy seeking to remove this insignificant speck from his eye all the while refusing to recognize and to deal with the sin in my life. 
we get honest, if we invert this order and we quit dealing on the sin in everybody else's life and begin to deal with the sin in our own lives, what we will recognize is that we presume to have the speck and we presume them to have the log. But every sin in your life, every sin in your life that you refuse to deal with, to recognize, to confess, to repent and turn against, each and every one of those is a log. And you look at it and you say, this is insignificant. This doesn't matter. God's grace just kind of covers this. I'm not going to deal with this sin of pride, this sin of gluttony, this sin of laziness. Whatever it is, disbelief, being uncharitable, each and every one of these things we presume to be okay and passable because they are passable culturally. Each of these is significant in the eyes of God and in reality is the log that you refuse to deal with. So we, we sit here this morning of people flooding this room with the various sins looming large in our life. Each of us has something that the Holy Spirit desires for us to work through. In refusing to see this is an admission or, or a supposing on your part that you are, in actually, you are actually perfect. The only one perfect is Jesus. All of us have something significant that God desires for us to work through. Look what happens when we don't recognize that. We get into verse 5, and he says, you hypocrite. Now, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus referred to us as hypocrites for three things. He says, I mean, you give so other people will see how much you give and they would celebrate you. You pray so other people would hear you pray and they would celebrate you. You fast or you exercise spiritual discipline so other people would see that and they would celebrate you and say, you are a righteous man. You are a righteous woman. But here the hypocrite's not somebody who's going out and doing something amazing for God to be seen by others. Here the hypocrite is the person who refuses to deal with his or her own sin. Are you a hypocrite today? As God sits and he looks at your heart, are you guilty today of being a hypocrite? Or have you opened your heart to God and, and asked him to come in and to remove this sin from you? Those things that you are tempted to believe are insignificant. Have you asked him to break your heart even to those things that are insignificant and passable? That's what we need to do before our God today. Look what he calls us to. Interestingly, I think culturally what our society would suppose is that if if we're recognized to be a hypocrite and God says, you hypocrite, first take the log or take the log out of your own eye, passage would end there, right? He'd say, deal with your own sin and then he would just end it there. But for the community to work requires investment of me into your life, of you into my life and us into the lives of everybody else in this room. There should be no Christians on the fray and on the peripheral. That's why church membership is so incredibly valuable because it is us submitting ourselves to be held accountable one to another. This is why ultimately if you stay on the edges and don't get invested in a church, you can never really be held accountable. It makes it easier on you. 
That's not what he calls us to. He says, first take the log out of your own eyes. I have to recognize that those things that I think are insignificant, or in some cases, those things where you are egregiously sinning before God, that if you were to voice and articulate your sin, the people on the rows before you and behind you would get up and walk out. They'd be like, whoa! Like, I was looking for the easy sin, like, I stole a pencil this morning from the library. (laughs) I can deal with that. When you said, I want to burn the library to the ground, and I think about it all the time, that was weirding me out. Where do you live anyway? We want to confess our sins one to another. We want to be those who are broken and vulnerable, but it requires us first to deal with our own sin. And then when we deal with our own sin, this is what he says, then you can see clearly to come in close to your brother or sister, and having removed your own sin, and you draw close to them, and you can remove with skill and accuracy the sin in their life. If I'm unwilling to deal with the sin in my life, I have no business involving myself in seeking to remove someone else's sin. Hear me on this. God is not saying you need to be perfect to work to remove the sin in someone else's life. If that's the case, none of us are dealing with anybody else's sin. I want you all just to shut up, sit down, and nod. What he calls us to do is to recognize that each of us have sin. I'm working to put the sin in my life to death. And on the basis of this, I've given myself to allow God to work in my heart, to help me desire to pursue holiness. And from this place and this trajectory of holiness, then he allows me to come close to my brother or sister in faith in Christ and Jesus and to help them walk up out of their sin. You see, because when I'm broken to my own sin, it produces mercy and generosity and humility in me. But if I don't think I have any sin, if I don't think I have any issues, then I come to this person full of pride, full of arrogance, and my heart is not close to God. I want a broken person. I want a humble person. I want a person who recognizes their sinfulness and their need for a Savior even now. I want that person working in my heart and searching for the sin in my life. I don't want this self-righteous person who has it all put together, who everybody looks at and says, man, they've got it all figured out. That person will wreak havoc in my life. They will destroy your life. And likely, When you are honest and broken with them, all it's doing is building them up more. And they feel more self-righteous and more secure in their sinlessness. Don't be a hypocrite. Be broken. Now, verse 6, I think you can interpret a number of different ways. And so what I want to look at is just one way this morning. And so just know that you can take this by itself and and you can take it that it's a discussion of extending the gospel. And you can take it that it's an extension of any number of different things. But what makes the most sense kind of in the way that it's packaged here in 1 through 6. Occasionally, you're going to go and talk to somebody. So you're going to talk to this low-down, dirty lawyer. And you're going to say, look, I know you're cheating people. I know you're lying. And I know you check Christianity at the door when you go in and out of the firm. Man, I love you. I care for you deeply. As a believer in faith in Jesus Christ, 
the way that you have a relationship with Jesus cannot be checked at the door. It has to be with you in your office. It has to be with you in the courtroom. It has to be with you everywhere you go. You cannot bifurcate. You cannot split your life and be a Christian in this realm and not a Christian in that realm. Occasionally, we're going to go to that person. And they're going to turn around and say, well, these are all the various ways you sinned against me, and so you can't talk to me. Or you just don't understand. I mean, these, these things have to be done this way, that my, my career has to happen this way, and so they're going to make excuses, they're going to argue with you, and no amount of discussing with them, no amount of reasoning with them is going to lead them to submit to what God's Word says. So Jesus in this deal says, there, there are times where this is going to happen. I can remember in our second year of marriage, I had a very difficult conversation with a close family member, and I said, you are sinning against your wife, and this is how you're doing it. He turned, he said, well, these are all the ways you sinned against me, and so you are not able to say these things to me. Didn't talk to me for six, nine months. So my brother-in-law called him, and, and he said, look, I, I know you've had this conversation with Matt, but I just want to tell you, you're sinning, and this is how you're sinning. Met with the same response, different list of sins for him, but same response, same attitude. There are times you don't have sin looming large in your life. You're not seeking to be self-righteous, but you're going to call a brother or sister out. You're going to talk to your spouse. You're going to talk to your kids. You're going to talk to your friends, your coworkers, your neighbor about sin in their life. Christian people, you're going to talk to them about sin in your life, and they are not going to receive it well. And they're going to blast you. And they're going to hate you. And you may lose their friendship. Could happen. That's why he says here, don't give to the dog or to the pig what is holy. What we're not called to do is over and again continue to go to them and just point out all the various ways they're failed because when you do that, all you're doing is stirring them up and making them more and more angry. Do we cut them off and do we just kind of abandon them to their pursuits? No. But there is not in this the repeated injunction or kind of command for us in our lives to continue to go to them and say, hey, look, this is how you're cheating and defrauding people every time I see them. Hey, you want to get a burger? I, I do, as long as you understand you're cheating and defrauding people and that you giving me a burger is not buying me off, in my opinion. He's not asking us to do that. He's saying recognize the, the response isn't always going to be positive, but that doesn't remove from us the responsibility to be involved and invested in the lives of those people around us. I'm going to show you what it looks like, kind of why we can come into this. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, has this just amazing picture. So he's writing to the church in Corinth, and they're just a hot mess. And, and starting in verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And they're all nodding. We get that. We understand that. Unrighteous people have nothing to do with God. And he says, do not be deceived. And so he begins to list these things. He says, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And they're like, so the unrighteous, now you're just listing them. And he turns it. And he says, and such were some of you. To be a believer in faith in Jesus Christ is not to be perfect. 
It's the furthest thing in the world from that. But it's to recognize in our imperfection and in our fallenness that a perfect God came near to us in the person of Jesus. So Paul's got them there, and he's got us there. And as we kind of insert your sin, insert the thing that you're struggling with the most, the thing you struggled with the most before you came to know Jesus, doubt, disbelief, goodness. I just want to be good. I just want to be seen as being good. He says, if such were some of you, but you were washed, he applied his blood to your life, and he washed the stain of sin away. You were sanctified. God took you once who were unholy, and he has made you holy. You have been transferred from outside of his kingdom to inside of his kingdom. You were justified. At that moment, God reckoned you righteous. And all these things, not because you said the right thing, did the right thing. But it's because of how powerful the atoning death of Jesus is for you. You place your faith and confidence in Jesus and not in yourself. He says you're justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The reason I'm able to walk up to another brother or sister in Christ who's struggling with sin is because I recognize my Genesis story. I recognize my origin. Not as a person who was mostly good, who had it all figured out, and then God gave me the nod and said, now you're being called up to the big leagues. But I recognize my origin story, like every origin story for every Christian who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Each and every one of us was lost and far from him. He drew near to us and changed our hearts. And so when I begin to slip back into who I was, when I begin to slip and allow sin to reign and to rule in my heart, I remember Paul's words in Galatians, how blessed it is to bring a brother back from brink. I remember Jesus' brother's words in James 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. God calls upon us to be maximally invested in the lives of believers in faith in Jesus Christ. Not just in this church, because this is where your membership is, but especially in this place. The people in this room should know you to a tremendous depth. They should know where you struggle so that when they see you struggling, they can call you back. They should know where you fail so that when they see you fail, they can with grace and mercy come up underneath you and bear your burden with you and win you back. And they can't do that if you don't let them. They can't do that if they don't know you. And they won't do that if you don't endeavor to do the same Thanks for them. I mean, can we be a church that's not full of judgmental people, but a church of people who judge rightly and invest ourselves in the lives of those here? Because in doing that, it gives a picture of the redemption afforded and brought to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, it is so much easier 
be judgmental, to come to conclusions about someone else's heart, someone else's life. You alone are able to judge and to do so rightly. You alone are able to save. So God, I pray this morning that you would move in our hearts, that you would convict us of sin. Some of us this morning that we would remove the logs from our eyes. Quit focusing on the sin in someone else's life and focus on my own so that you can get me to the place where I can be used to be helpful in the lives of those who are struggling with sin around me. God, I pray for the lost person here this morning. seeking to to deal with sin on their own or just to refuse to believe that sin has consequence. God, I pray that your spirit would be at work in their heart, that you would convict them concerning sin, and that you would show them Jesus, the Savior and Sustainer, that they might be made clean through his sacrifice, that they might be made alive by his rising from the dead. God, we submit these things to you. We ask that you would move in our presence. And we pray all this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.